Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. As I speak, it's Thursday, July 22nd, 2021. The headline, just give you a sense of what's going on in the world in today's Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as always. In historic vote, city council okay civilian oversight of police department. Well, we talked a lot about that earlier uh, in the show today, pre and you probably are listening to it right now as I speak and do this recording, but we're not going to be talking about that today. We have other things on our agenda that we'll be discussing, and as I do with all my distinguished guests, for bonus time at the Ben Jarowski Show, I ask them to introduce themselves. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, this is Mary Vishnevsky. I, I was the transportation reporter for the Chicago Tribune, moved on, but I'm still doing freelance on transportation and other issues and uh, I've been, uh, you know, fo following what's going on with Lakeshore Drive and all the other transportation news in the city. And uh, I wrote a book about Nelson Algren. We talked about that on here before. Yes. And I just want to plug that interview. It's a very popular interview. We did it, I forget when, I think it was about a year ago, uh, Mary. And uh, I, so. I have uh, an appreciation for Nelson Algren. But Mary has studied the man, probably knows him as well, if not better than any writer in the city of Chicago in her biography of of Nelson Algar, my humble opinion, uh, is well worth reading. So welcome back to the show. Mary, I don't think we're going to be talking about uh, Nelson Algren. Who knows where the conversation will take <laughs> us. Uh, Thanks. You and I get together. Lord knows where it's going to end up. And, uh, and Nelson right. finds his way in. Yes, yeah. he will find his way in. And maybe it's because the neighborhood that he once came from uh, might have been affected uh, by the expressway that we're going to be discussing. Uh, now that I think of it, it's a little east of it, so maybe not. All right. Anyway, what? Well, his his home on um, Wabansio was the, where he had his affair with uh, Simone de Beauvoir was actually destroyed by the Kennedy. So he was affected by the interstate system. Folks, and that's I told what my Elgren club. <laughs> I tell you what, this could turn into a Nelson Algren conversation like like that, but I'm going to withstand that temptation. Uh, so anyway, what triggered uh, my phone call to Mary to get her on the, the show 
uh, was an article she wrote not too long ago, a couple weeks back. And uh, for, um, I'm going to call it up right now. I should have had it up already. My bad. Uh, it was uh, Remember the Crosstown. Here's the story of Chicago's, Chicago's successful 1970s freeway revolt, uh, street blogs, uh, uh, blog. Uh, she wrote that uh, article for them. And boy, did that trigger some memories. Mary, I may be one of the few people in the city of Chicago old enough uh, to remember the Crosstown Expressway fights. This was in the 1970s. It was a pivotal fight on many fronts. Uh, one having to do with uh, uniting uh, various communities that were n- not normally united to, uh, defying the all-powerful mayor at the time, Richard J. Daley, uh, and also articulating a new view about where we should head uh, in uh, transportation uh, needs. And in many ways, those three fights, Mary, are still very much alive in Chicago. Okay, May- Mayor Richard Daley's gone, but uh, we still have the issue of how much power one person should have, how much power one mayor should have in the city of Chicago. And it's very much uh, a topic of conversation we have uh, on this show all the time with various aldermen and activists, et cetera. So why don't we break it down uh, point by point? Let's first start, uh, let's make this old fight relevant uh, to today's times, uh, Mary. So let's talk first about what exactly the Crosstown proposal was. Sure. Um, this was a now back in the 1930s. You got to remember, you, you know, cars used to be basically rich men's toys back in you know in the first part of the century, and then in the 20s they started to become more of a regular person thing, and in the 30s, you know, of course, as a result of that, there were there was traffic and people were saying, "Aren't the cars great? Shouldn't we just allow them to be everywhere and have expressways and highways that just allow them to go without having to stop at stop signs and stuff like that." And so at that time, um, these kind of big expressways and wide streets started becoming coming into favor. And so the Crosstown Expressway was an idea that actually dates back into the 1939. And what it would do, would, um, the proposal that originally uh, got funding was that it would go from the Kennedy Expressway up around, uh, around the Edens Junction all the way east of Cicero. It would be an eight-lane expressway. So imagine from the Kennedy east of Cicero, all the way down to about 75th Street into the Dan Ryan. So it would be 22 miles um, along east of Cicero Avenue, and it would also have had a a transit component. And uh, the people, the uh, uh, AAA had been promoting this, and and it was a big dream of, as you said, of Richard J. Daly. Um, But the difference with the crosstown between, you know, we, we, before that we had the Eisenhower going and tear up all sorts of neighborhoods and we had the Kennedy and we had the Dan Ryan. But the difference with the Crosstown was that people had seen what kind of damage expressways like this can do to a neighborhood. You know, it can tear things apart. It can tear neighborhoods apart. It can tear parishes apart, displace tens of thousands of people. The Crosstown would have displaced up to 30,000 people and torn up hundreds of businesses and so this time the people said no. And they and a movement started in 1971, late 1971, to stop it. Now, what was the stated reason for the Crosstown? Let's put aside whatever uh, subterranean reasons it may have existed or Machiavellian reasons that they don't state. Let's just talk about what was the professed public good articulated by the supporters of this expressway to justify displacing 30,000 people? 
Well, they thought it would relieve congestion and they thought it would help business, especially some of the manufacturing business that was along that corridor. There was a lot of um, light manufacturing. There still is around that area. They thought it would help with truck traffics, maybe keep some of the trucks off of the local roads. Um, they thought it would help with Midway Airport, um, bring more business to Midway, and they thought it would create jobs. And this, you know, this was the reasoning that they gave in this. And there are a lot of people, you know, people in power who were who thought that this was a good idea. And, and uh, this is the problem. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, the, the idea of, well, this will decrease congestion is, is pretty much always put forward as a reason for expanding roads or creating expressways or, you know, adding more lanes. The problem with the, what various studies have found, is, you know, through the, the last couple of decades is that when you create new space for cars, you, it doesn't relieve congestion. What it does is it, is it creates more cars. It, it, more people say to themselves, hey, you know, I can take a car here. You know, before the traffic was too bad, but now I can take a car. And of course, that adds more cars. So it just kind of fills, you know, the, the, the number of cars fills to fill the space. So it, it, it doesn't end up creating, uh, alleviating congestion. All right. So folks, let's just think about this for a, a moment. Uh, it would go all the way from the north side to the south side, or depending on your, your perspective, all the way from the south side to the north side, uh, along roughly uh, just east of Cicero. 30,000 people would be displaced. That's a lot of houses, a lot of two flats, a lot of apartments torn down, demolished. I, I just, Mary, help me with this. You've uh, written about Chicago for a long time. Uh, you've lived in Chicago for a while. Uh, you wrote, of course, this is this really is out of the pages of Nelson Algren in, in so many ways. The attitude that it, the powers that be in the city of Chicago had that displacing 30,000 people was not something to be upset about. In fact, it was something to be championed and uh, endorsed. As an outsider who was not born in this city, was not raised in this city, I find that kind of staggering. Just explain to me a little bit about, and it, it, I know it's not Chicago. I'm thinking of Robert Moses in New York City. He was doing the same thing, right. thing at roughly right. the same time, uprooting a whole neighborhood. All right, Chicago boosters. If there are other people as insane as you are. But just think about that. Thirty. You just said that. 30,000 people would be displaced. Isn't there anybody in power in the city of Chicago who goes, hmm, maybe it's not a good idea to displace 30,000 people, which is, what, like 1% of the population at the time? I'm not that great with math, but I think it's 1%. Go ahead. It was a lot, it was a lot of people. Not only that, not only displacing these people, but for this expressway, it was going to have four, a kind of four blocks between the north and the south sections. So that, and the idea was that they wanted to have this kind of area for development and in the middle. And what this would do would, would be create a, a no man's land between these 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 big, you know, chunks of expressway. And who wants to live that close to an expressway? So who would want to live in that center area? And what people were told at the time was, for one thing, they weren't told exactly where the expressway would go. So everyone was on tenterhooks wondering if it was going to be their house that was going to come down or between the or be between the expressway legs. And the other thing was, is that people were told, well, you know, we'll, we'll move you somewhere else. You know, maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll put you in a housing development over here. And so people were terrified. You know, this was their lives. Uh, one of the people I talked to was the, um, her family had just moved into a house in, uh, 
in, in Irving Park on a street which now is a very, um, you know, expensive street in Irving Park. Beautiful, beautiful homes. And they had just bought their home and they get a flyer on their front porch saying, hey, your, you know, your house might get knocked down because of an expressway. And so this was how, you know, when people saw that this would have, you know, destroyed everything that they had worked for. You know, they were busy fixing up the house. And the thing that was different about this expressway compared to the other ones that went through is that 1972 was not 1950. I mean, people were people had already seen the protest against the Vietnam War. They had seen the protest in the civil rights movement and they realized that they had power. And then they just didn't have to put up with this. And there were, and this was this, and they had seen what these expressways did to neighborhoods. And so people had, you know, people who might not have fought City Hall back in the 50s were ready to fight City Hall in the 70s. And the coalition that helped stop the expressway was made up of Catholic priests from the parishes that were going to be affected by by the expressway because they didn't want their congregations broken up. And they were Protestant ministers, uh, white working class people, black working class people, Hispanic working class people, all these people came together and they were organized by, um, by Saul Alinsky trained organizers that came to, it was the Citizens Action Program, CAP, and they were very organized. And uh, they would have an action once a week. They'd plan out, they'd go to the basement of Daniel the Prophet Church <laughs> down in Garfield Ridge and they'd say, okay, this week we're gonna do this thing. And then they would call the TV cameras and call the newspapers and they would, you know, do whatever it is. They, you know, one, one action involved a duck because they said that uh, the guy in, in charge of, of planning it was ducking the questions. So they brought a duck and who doesn't love a duck, right? You know, and so they had that on all the TV stations and in all the newspapers. And they just did this relentlessly and they made it a part. It became a part of the gubernatorial race in 1972, mm-hmm. which yeah. was lucky because that's, you know, it was Dan Walker was opposed to the expressway. And Richard Ogilvy was the incumbent governor running as a, a Republican. And at least this is me speaking, opining something here. Uh, this is, these are not necessarily the views of, of Mary. Uh, I, one thing that strikes me when I think about all the major plans that have come out of City Hall over the last 30 years and the similarities they have to what went down under Mayor Richard J. Daley, who was the mayor in charge of Chicago when this the crosstown was being proposed is how much how little resistance or opposition there is from the powerful entities in Chicago and i'm just thinking it's just almost as though when the emperor gets something in his mind there's nobody in a position of authority mary nobody close to the emperor nobody within whispering distance who has the guts to say you know your honor you're a great mayor i love your suits by the way they're wonderful suits and your sons are beautiful but this is not a smart idea to displace thirty thousand people and i saw it the same thing with the olympics everybody jumped aboard the bandwagon thank goodness we didn't get those freaking olympics you saw what happened in brazil when they got the olympics and I just, the parking meter sales, another one that comes to my mind. It seems like Chicago has this tradition. Help me with this, Mary. Where a powerful mayor gets something in his head and nobody, except for a few malcontents who are like Alinskyites or writers for the reader, <laughs> object, object. Please explain to me something about the mentality of Chicago. 
Well, I think that, um, no, I think people have this idea that you can't fight City Hall. And we've long had this kind of strong mayor system. And this is a very hardworking city that kind of keeps its nose to the grindstone and doesn't look up unless, uh, you know, something's happening right in their backyard or their front yard. And I think this is what happened here. And I think that the reason um, that... Uh, I think that's the reason why it's so inspiring for me to have looked at this story because this shows you can fight city hall and they did it and they managed, it was part, partly organization, partly timing, partly, you know, they happened to, it went along with the gubernatorial race. The other thing that was going on is that there was an, there was kind of, there was an anti-expressway revolt around the country. It was in the air. There was, there were freeways stopped in New York and Seattle and Los Angeles around the same time because people were starting to see that, you know, this wasn't this answer to all their problems. This was a cause of problems. This was a cause of suburbanization and segregation and dividing up of neighborhoods. And people were seeing that in the 1970s. So this was kind of, there was this, this is kind of part of the zeitgeist that was, that was, uh, but, you know, the people who fought the Crosstown, it's like they weren't in fringe leather jackets. You know, these were these were church people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look at the pictures of these people from these protests. And I, I looked at, you know, some of the, you know, these were, were priests with their collars. And these were ladies with their purses and their kids and their dogs, you know, trying, you know. And the lady I talked to, who was a, is a member of my church choir, I sing with her. And this is how come I learned about this story, because I wasn't around when this was going on. And, uh, you know, they all look like they were ready to have tea, not to fight <laughs> Mayor Daly. Yeah. And, but they did. They did. And, uh, and indeed, it was a, uh, a fight that joined uh, black and white uh, neighborhoods, which is very unique for Chicago, Mary. That's something else you should uh, uh, talk about. I can't recall a similar movement uh, post-World War II in which there was so much uh, racial unity. Uh, at least it's just an opposition to this one proposal. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, it was because they knew it, they knew it was coming and, and it really helped to have professional organizers. It wasn't just a few people, you know, waving signs and, and trying to talk during the city council meeting. You know, these, these people that they had who were, you know, you know, from the, from the Linsky movement were the ones that were backing this thing and were organizing it and were doing these weekly meetings and just being relentless, mm -hmm. just being real pains in the neck. And uh, the um, lady I, t I talked about from my choir, Marion Roach, uh, said, who, uh, said that, you know, you don't need everybody to be in on a movement, but you get a certain percentage. And if you get that certain percentage, they can start talking to their neighbors. She said that she had a neighbor who told her, oh, you can't fight City Hall. And then gradually over time, she started becoming active, too. Uh, you can fight City Hall. I think City that's Hall. what people have to get. Yeah, you can fight City Hall. You can do it with organization. You can do it with a good cause. And um, and you can do it with, you know, a realization of how much this is going to mean for your community. All right. Now, before we uh, take it to the broader issue of car culture, uh, there, this is like one of the few Chicago stories that has a happy ending in some ways because uh, money had been allocated for the Crosstown. And because the Crosstown uh, ultimately was not built or constructed, the money went to other things. So talk a little bit, Mary, about uh, where the money that would have gone to the Crosstown ended up going. Sure. Well, well, when when Ogilvy was defeated, we had Dan Walker, um, you know, became the uh, governor and he said he was not against he, he was against the Crosstown. But that didn't quite kill it because Mayor Richard Jay kept pushing for it. But then Mayor Richard Jay died and Belandic was not as into it. And so when Jane Byrne took over, and meanwhile, the cost for the project keep going up and up and up. 
And Jane Byrne took, takes over and she and Governor Thompson kill it. And so there's $2 billion in federal funds that are earmarked for this. And under this deal called interstate transfer funds, uh, communities were able to take funds that were had been allocated for the highway and do something else with them, another highway or transit project. And so what, what that ended up happening is half of that money went to support the extension of the blue line out to O'Hare. Um, people who are newer to the city don't, maybe don't know that it used to just stop at Jefferson Park. It didn't go to O'Hare. Then it went to O'Hare. And construction of the Orange Line to Midway Airport. So now Chicago has this unique and wonderful thing where we have two transit connections, rapid transit connections to both of our airports, which is really rare. And we owe it all to the fight. By the way. We owe it to this. We owe it to this. this. Came from and you, this is another thing about Chicago. This is me speaking, not Mary, but this is another classic Chicago. This is a good thing that came out of community organizers and activists and uh, ordinary human beings who fought Mayor Daly. You don't see any tribute <laughs> to anybody like this. Some rich guy gives money for Millennium Park. They put they carve his name in stone. A bunch of activists on the Northwest and South Sides fight the powers that be, and we end up with trains that go to the airports which only makes all the sense in the world they don't put like in a stone i want to thank all the activists the alinskyites to that <laughs> it's like they don't want to encourage anyone mary to ever rebel against city hall even though good things come sometimes when you fight city hall and beat city hall but they don't want to give anybody in chicago the idea they could do it and that is so nelson algren what i just said mary yeah yeah maybe we should make a statue to the duck you know we can <laughs> <laughs> You can put it, make, put it in Kilbourne Park. You know, <laughs> this, this is the in Kilbourne Park. There was a uh, article. I don't know if you uh, came upon this when you're doing your research uh, in the Reader that must have run. I did not write it, uh, but I remember reading it. It had a, a big impact on me. It was the headline that did it. It was called "Linsky Lives," and it was a picture. They had a picture of of crosstown activists, and they were wearing these sunglasses. I can't remember why they were wearing the sunglasses, but for some reason, they were. That was part of their uh, protest that day. They to draw attention to themselves, and it talked about all the tactics of a Saul Linsky uh, that he put down in Rules for Radical, Revelry for Radicals his two textbooks on the organizing, which, by the way, have been largely taken by the right. That's a whole other story. Naga uses Alinsky all the time. Uh, and talked about how it was employed by the activists in the Crosstown fight. And it was just such a memorable thing. Like the duck, the sunglasses, anything they could do to force the mainstream media to come pay attention to them as opposed to just covering the powers that be. And I think that also was part of the struggle, winning media attention. Right. And, you know, Bob Kramer, who's uh, uh, Jan Schakowsky's husband, but he was the he was worked on this with the Citizens Action Program. One of the things he pointed out to me kind of wistfully is that in 1972, we had a lot more newspapers. You know, we had more media. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the problems with today is that there's not enough reporters to to cover some of this stuff. You know, not that that should stop you, you know, make them come out. Yeah, no, make if them you're, come out. If you've got. Uh, yeah, no, they're. Uh, uh... There was, okay, God, I can do this. Tribune, American, Chicago Today, Chicago Daily News, Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Daily Defender, mm -hmm. six daily newspapers I just named. Wow, man, I'm old. I yeah, remember all yeah. of them. Uh, <laughs> all right, <laughs> let's move on. One of uh, Mary's ongoing interests, some might call it obsession, uh, nothing wrong with obsessions if you put them in a positive direction, Mary, uh, is the general notion of a car culture. And so we've talked about uh, how the expressway was very much of a part of a different, uh, a very particular type of culture 
an, an obsession with cars. Uh, go into uh, more detail about that, Mary. What do you mean by the car culture in this country and how it dictates projects like this? Sure. I, I think that, you know, I talked a little bit before about how in the 1920s and 30s, the car became something for the common person. And it became kind of, you know, the expression, you know, like if, if your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think that's pe how people started to see cars like in, and roads. Like if only we had more roads, we could have more jobs. And if only we had more roads, we could have more trucking. And if only we had more roads, we could get more people around. And that really started affecting in, in some negative ways. I'm not saying I don't like cars because I do, you know, I listen to the Beach Boys, you know, it's, it's fun stuff. But, you know, that, that cars are the answer to every problem. And that we have to, you know, create more space for cars. And so, like, you know, so we have, when we get federal funding for transportation, the vast majority of that funding goes towards roads, goes towards car infrastructure, when it could, more of it could be going to transit, more of it could be coming, going to pedestrian and, and walking. And people just don't think that way. And I think that that's starting to change. I think that the 70s were actually when that started to change, when people started realizing the problems that are brought by cars. There's the, you know, the pollution, the car accidents. I mean, there's over 35,000 people a year die in crashes. And the, the numbers were particularly bad in the last year during the pandemic. Even though there were fewer people on the roads, people were driving like maniacs because there were fewer people on the roads. And there was a lot of, there was a high a volume of death compared to vehicle miles traveled. But people have a hard time seeing past, seeing other solutions besides cars. Because when I worked at the Tribune and I would write about a bike path or I would write about a transit idea, people would write me regularly, you know, some, you know, bossy guy would say, hey, you don't you realize that the roads were built for cars? And I'd say, no, they weren't. Milwaukee Avenue was not built for cars. It was built for horses. <laughs> it was a plank road and it was built for horses so farmers could bring their goods downtown. And then actually the first paving that happened on our roads in Chicago were built for bicycles because bicycles were a really popular sport um, and activity during the 1890s and the first part, early part of the 20th century. So the original paving was built for bicycles and the cars came later. And I think that people should realize that the car roads are built for people and they're for how the people should be using them. And that, you know, and it's, it had been cars, but I think now we have to start thinking about other kinds of uses. Um, bus rapid transit, bicycles, pedestrians. Um, and I think that the culture is starting to shift. And you see that, like you see that in Times Square. I mean, who could imagine Times Square without cars? It no longer has cars and it's working great. Uh, there's some irony in all this, and that is uh, having to do with the crosstown connection again. Uh, the mayor who was responsible, and I criticized him almost every day uh, he was mayor, but I gave him a shout out on his front for promoting the notion that Chicago was a bike friendly city or could be a bike friendly city. So here comes a shout out, Richard M. Daly. I'm giving you credit for something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember Bike Day at, uh, at Daly Plaza where da Mayor Daly. Uh, would be promoting bike riding. Uh, he was more of a bike rider outside of the city, like when he would go to his vacation home in Michigan, but he, he promoted bike lanes. And there would be grumblings uh, but, you know, of discontent among certain aldermen about this, Murray. But this is the one time when the emperor rules had a, uh, a benefit uh, <laughs> yeah. for, as far as I can. It's like when he took up the uh, airport at Meg's Field in the lakefront, I'm like, yeah, 
dictators. All right. Uh, <laughs> you know, when, when you like the t- what, what the tyrant does, yeah, it's not so bad to have a tyrant. Uh, but let's talk, let's talk about that. Um, how, how much, in your opinion, uh, has Chicago transformed since the days of the Crosstown fight uh, with the, uh, having an open uh, attitude toward bike riding in Chicago? Um, I would have to say, unfortunately, not as much as it could have. Um, there's still a lot of hostility towards um, bicycling, towards pedestrians. It's still very much a car city. And uh, I, I've, I've been a regular bike commuter for the last, geez, since 20 years. And uh, I've, I've been grateful for the infrastructure improvements. I've been grateful for Divi. I've been grateful for the bike lanes and things like that. But I still catch the attitude from drivers that we're not supposed to be there. And I hear that from drivers yelling at me from their car windows. You know, get on the sidewalk. You know, <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> get on the sidewalk. People don't know the rules of the road. You know, they just don't. And I think it's changing. But I know I know people I tell people I commute to work and they think, you know, that I I might as well be telling them I'm flying on a flying trapeze or on a tightrope to work because they can't believe I would be that daring to do that. And you're considered a daredevil if you bike to work and it shouldn't be that way. You go to cities in Europe and there's you see a guy in a three piece suit talking on a cell phone, eating a banana and he's bicycling to work. And that's how it should be. What are some of the things you would like to see Chicago do? Uh, I know a lot of things were put on hold with the pandemic, but what are some of the things, the changes that you would like to see Chicago make to make us less dependent on on cars uh, and uh, more dependent on other forms of transportation? I think that there's a lot of places that could use a road diet. Um, I would, and a road diet means reducing the number of lanes on a road. And uh, maybe replacing that either with bike lanes or with, um, and also with bus rapid transit lanes. I recently did a st- uh, an op-ed for the Chicago Tribune, uh, Let's Honor DuSable by getting rid of, of the high-speed highway on the lake. Because we have Lakeshore Drive that everyone talks about and is so sentimental about. But come on, it wasn't designed that way. It was designed to be just a little place where you could... You know, you could, uh, you know, uh, go out and, you know, in the, in, in the 19th century and show off your hat, you know, you, you know, and, and walk along the lakefront. And now it's this eight, eight lane freeway. You know, it's supposed to be only 40 miles per hour on the north side. And people don't do that. You know, people regularly go 70 miles per hour there. There's lots of crashes there and it's it's pollution. And also, you know, when you think about climate change and how it's affecting our lake levels, it's going to be very hard to continue to maintain the drive in the current state that it is. So I think one solution could be turning it into two lanes in each direction and maybe making one of those lanes a bus express lane. And uh, people say, well, what about, how can I get around? I need Lakeshore Drive. Well, you know what, if you need to drive, and a lot of people do, you know, if you have physical disabilities or whatever, that's, that's fine. Um, but if you have more people on the buses, and you have more people on transit, you're going to ha- you're going to be able to drive because there will be less cars on the road. What we don't need is all these um, people in cars, single passenger cars who don't need to be there when they could be doing something else. You know, uh, I'm, you're singing in a choir here. And I, I told you this before I went on the air. I, I said it was in the 90s, but it could have been the early O's. I've lost track of time. 
Maria, but I remember there were some uh, bike activists and bike enthusiasts who were pr- pushing a uh, depave Lakeshore Drive movement, and I was wholeheartedly supporting them, banging the drum and the reader. I, did, I must have done three or four uh, columns about it. And and when I would talk to people um, outside, you know, just, just chatting with ordinary uh, Chicagoans about this idea, they looked at me like I was utterly insane. Like the what a preposterous notion that we would do exactly what you just advocated, exactly what you just advocated, reducing the number of lanes on Lakeshore Drive, making maybe uh, earmarking one for a bus so that it there would be uh, public transportation on it, having bike lanes on there. This was the the idea that uh, these activists had. I want to say like two thousand and four or so, something like that, and. Of course, it hasn't gone anywhere. I often think that had Mayor Daly, Richard M. Daly, gotten into his head that this was a good idea, we may have, you know, like I said, nobody says no to the boss. We may have... X's on on some of the lanes. Yes. Right right in the middle. I'd be like, yeah. (laughs) All right. Mayor Daly. Well, yeah, that would have been a... um, but you know, it's, it would be a tough sell to get rid of Lakeshore Drive altogether because you want, you know, you want people to have access to the lakefront and not everybody is going to be able to bike or walk to the lakefront. You have to accommodate people who can't get there in other ways, but I don't think we need eight lanes. I don't think people, you know, we need it as this major commuting way when, uh, when we could use public transit instead. And I think people would actually prefer that. I, I saw your essay. I saw your essay in the Tribune. I'm wondering, what was the response to it? Did people call you, uh, you know, like a Luddite or something like that? No, it was actually overwhelmingly positive. Um, I just heard from a few people who said, but, you know, I, I, I live on South Lakeshore Drive and it's the, you know, in the South Side and this is the only way I can get to the doctor or whatever. And, and my response was, well, if more people are on the bus you know, then you'll have more freedom to go to the doctor and you won't be stuck in traffic. You know, there'll still be, I think that we should still make this, you know, driving a choice if you need it. But if we make, if we make other choices more feasible, fewer people will drive. And then the people who have to drive will actually have more freedom. Mm. So, uh, as I said at the outset, uh, your next big project is uh, a book on car culture. Is it will it be car culture in America as a whole, or will you be uh, concentrating on Chicago? Well, I'll be. You know, of course, I'm I'm prejudiced towards Chicago, so I think. But but a lot of that, but it'll be an, an America as a whole because America is kind of the driving force behind car culture around the world, and so I think that that's you know it's a good lens to look at. And, uh, and the things that we saw happen in Chicago with expressways, you know, tearing through neighborhoods and leading to desegregation, mostly tearing through neighborhood, you know, neighborhoods with, with immigrants and people of color and, you know, the cities using it. Oh, we can, we can eliminate blight and put through an expressway at the same time, as they called it, you know, blight meaning people, they didn't want to be there. Um, you know, so that's, and that, that's been something around, um, and also just, you know, how ugly it has made our country with the billboards and with, um, downtown strips of, of towns looking the same everywhere in the country and giant parking lots, you know, being, you know, all over the place and contributing to climate change. It's, it's, we, we've created a strange world with the automobile and some of it has been good. You know, some of it, you know, there's, there's certainly advantages to, you know, be, people being able to get around more quickly and people being able to get out of rural communities. 
but we're at the point now where we have to start rethinking how to do this because transportation is the leading cause of, uh, of, of the gases that produce climate change in the United States. And it's killing us. It's killing us right now. And so we have to think about, you can see that in the, the horrible, uh, uh, you know, wildfires we have in the West, the horrible heat we have in the West, um, the, you know, the floods, you know, the changing nature of, of our shorelines, not just on the uh, East and West Coast, but around the Great Lakes. You know, we have to start addressing this. And so we have to change the way we view our relationship to cars. And that's what I'm looking at. I'm with you 100%. By the way, I urge everybody, when you're done with this interview, go check out the, what, the conversation I had with uh, podcaster, environmentalist Mike Novak, talking about uh, the impact of all the development on Lake Michigan. Uh, it, it'll, it's, it's kind of frightening in many ways. Take kind of out of it. It's frightening in many ways uh, with the lake, uh, uh, with the potential. And I remember in the O's again, uh, Mary, there was, the lake was high and the water was pounding in and Lakeshore Drive would have to be closed many times after a storm because there would be so much water on it and, uh, there was so much erosion going on and we're right back where, uh, we were then. Uh, so let me close by asking you this question. This is a, a topic, a fun topic. Uh, my uh, good friend, Kenny Davis, Ken Davis and I have all the time. Uh, he's a lover of pu uh, public transportation and, uh, get your thoughts on this in closing. If you, uh, Knowing what you know now, Mary, uh, knowing what you know now, and, and if you were the emperor mayor of the city of Chicago uh, and you could uh, undo something, would you not allow the construction of the Eisenhower Expressway that was the expressway that went through uh, some the west side all the way uh, out to uh, Oak Park and beyond? Would you not have allowed the construction of the Dan Ryan that plowed through northwest side neighborhoods, destroying uh, Nelson Algren's old home, among other things? Would uh, Emperor uh, Mary uh, think that it's not a good idea to do that? Got a good idea to do that? Definitely not. Um, I think that it, the funny thing is, is that I've also heard that Eisenhower uh, President Eisenhower, who's credited, of course, for the interstate highway system, his intent also was not to bring the expressways into cities, that they were supposed to be outside of cities. And that, um, you know, this, this was uh, something unfortunate that happened out of the plan. And because be, because the, the idea was, of course, you know, that, you know, you were going to have these highways and they were going to be able to help you in case of a nuclear attack, right? So you can, you know, move equipment back and forth. But what ended up happening, it, it was destroyed, it destroyed neighborhoods and it contributed to suburbanization. And it drove people out of the cities and led to sprawl, which uses up more resources. And it really hollowed out cities. It um, just, you know, it made cities a kind of a, in, in, in several places, a bad, a worse place to be than the suburbs. And it, it, I think it, in environmentally and socially, they were disasters. And so, yeah, I mean, should we, uh, it, I think it's great that we have the transit lines through there. Um, but, uh, but I overall, yeah, I think that, uh, I don't think we can, yeah, it'd be difficult to get rid of them now, but I think overall the Kennedy and the Dan Ryan and the Eisenhower, we'd be better off without them. Depave the Kennedy. Wow. There's a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, you could have, in my humble opinion, you could have built those transit lines without a major highway. Just saying. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need <laughs> they think you're doing such a big favor when they put a transit line after plowing all it would have been a lot smaller of a footprint i think mary will agree with me you know what we should have had mary as mayor 
in the 70s and the 80s. And the, oh, you're too young in the 70s. Well, you know, ice cream for all. Definitely, <laughs> you know. cream. A paved Lakeshore Drive and ice cream for all. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us. It's always a blast. And I'm going to check in, check in with you from time to time with your freelance career uh, and bring you back on to talk about all these issues. And maybe we'll do another whole show to Nelson Algren. I don't think enough tribute can be made uh, to Nelson Algren and the radical ideas uh, that propelled him through life and ultimately caused him to just get out of Chicago and the hell with it all. All right. How about that? Well, that sounds great. Always right, a pleasure. Thank you very much, Mary. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.